This is The Corner Series, a McGuire Woods series exploring business and legal issues prevalent in today's private equity industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you for joining another episode of The Corner Series. I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell partner at McGuire Woods. Here at the Corner Series, we bring together thought leaders and deal makers at the intersection of uh, private equity investing in healthcare. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Andy Colbert, Senior Managing Director at Ziegler, and we're going to talk through kind of prognosis on the PPM environment and uh, areas of opportunity. But Andy, maybe if you could take a minute and uh, introduce yourself and Ziegler. Great. Thanks, Jeff, for having me on the show. So my name is Andy Colbert, one of the senior partners here at Ziegler. Been with the firm almost 18 years now, uh, about 20-year career in healthcare investment banking. Started my career at a firm called FBR and then was asked to come over to Ziegler in 2006 to help build out the M&A franchise here. And we've built out a team of about 50 M&A investment bankers. Um, I carve out the PPM space as my vertical and, and area of expertise and really enjoyed the opportunity to work on about 60 PPM transactions over my tenure here at, at Ziegler and look forward to diving into that, you know, over call it $5 billion worth of, of total value, typically working on deals in the 100 to 300 plus million dollar enterprise value range. So squarely in that kind of lower middle market, uh, you know, these are typically Companies that are call it ten to twenty five or thirty in, in EBITDA, and obviously get a chance to see a lot of the different sectors as well as private equity as well as strategic buyers. So, looking forward to diving into that today. So, Andy, the physician practice management uh, arena is a mixture of uh, tailwinds and headwinds. For a while, it was all tailwinds: uh, the ability to kind of expand uh, ancillary services and uh, other reasons why people were investing in physician consolidation. There's also some headwinds now as labor costs have become more expensive, antitrust pressures. So it's more of a mixed bag. When you kind of take all those pluses and minuses, what's your kind of general prognosis on provider consolidation? Yeah, you know, I think it continues to be an, an area of opportunity provided that you're looking in the right areas and, and really thinking about opportunity for capital appreciation and, and real sophisticated market expansion. My view on the sector is the winners and the opportunities are really going to be more outpatient-oriented models where there's an opportunity to really move services and uh, service lines and, and capabilities from the hospital to an outpatient setting where private equity can really be an enabler for these physician groups to either you know, invest and build out OBLs and uh, ambulatory surgery centers and, and other technical operations, invest in ancillary service lines, as well as help facilitate the move to value-based care. I think some of the more challenging models are going to be the more kind of hospital-focused models that are just purely staffing-oriented firms, just given those models just don't have as much opportunity for real income expansion, are a bit more challenged right now given just the cost of labor uh, rising and not as many kind of levers to move on. That's kind of my view of the opportunity in PPM. 
I do think that there's going to continue to be a need for these models as just there's a continued fragmentation in the physician landscape, much more so than we see in, in really any other healthcare services vertical. You know, just the fact that, you know, over 50% of all physician groups are still independently owned and privately held. And let's face it, I mean, the reality is with the challenges in the reimbursement landscape, the challenges in regulatory and complexity, my view is anything less than 50 physicians is going to struggle to stay independent. That creates real opportunity for these groups to really band together and scale an opportunity for private equity to really be that catalyst to help bring these groups together. And a market like this, I actually think is, is attractive because it enables some of these smaller groups to maybe you know get deals done in markets that historically maybe they weren't as, as willing or, or receptive to doing deals. And it feels like in, in today's market, there's a bit more receptivity maybe than there was in, in, in prior years. Before we go further into the areas that you think are most interesting, let's pause for a second on the areas that you think may be more challenging. So let's take it a maybe a more hospital-based staffing model. In looking at those areas, the premise is still there. There's lots of less than 50 provider practices where there would be benefits of consolidation, albeit you may not get the same ability to add an ASC, the same ability to internalize uh, ancillary service revenue. But in those areas, the challenges, do you think that's ultimately a challenge in the model for those areas or is it a challenge in the pricing? Because you can think of it as it may be that those areas don't justify quite the same multiple and maybe don't even justify the multiples that some of those businesses were acquired at, but the prognosis can still look good, maybe just at a different price. How would you separate whether or not that is a, a model problem versus a pricing problem? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think fundamentally what it comes down to is what are the levers? I mean, taking a step back, when you think about private equity and the value add to a physician model, in the historical days, a lot of it was tied to rate expansion and rate leverage. And I think a lot of the early days of the Sheridans of the world now envision and whatnot, and some of the other models out there that are kind of similar models, was really almost entirely predicated on the rate arbitrage, right? So acquiring a mega group in one market that has very healthy commercial rates and then buying other groups in the market that had less favorable rates and kind of leveraging that delta, if you will, to kind of lift everyone up and create expansion and, and profitability. That has become much more challenging and much more scrutinized with the more sophisticated managed care plans. There's also just a lot more consolidation now in the insurer landscape. So there's just more scrutiny on those types of aggregations. And so, you know, if you take the rate arbitrage off the table, it does unfortunately remove some of the the value add of these M&A models. And then really the question becomes, what's the true value add that you're bringing through scale Listen, there are some services, right, like revenue cycle management and 
some EMR and IT and other solutions, right, that certainly can be provided at a lower cost at scale. But unfortunately, I think those are fewer and far between relative to just the biggest elephant in the room, which is just the labor costs, right? And so I think the challenge is with rising costs of labor and the shortage of these physicians, you really have to factor that into the model. And if the revenues are relatively fixed, that's more of a challenge relative to models where you have the opportunity to actually enhance revenue by investing in other services and other ancillaries. And so I think that's really the question for these inpatient-focused models. I think the real question becomes, can you leverage those inpatient models to build other ancillaries and other service lines around them that can kind of expand wallet share and expand revenue capture? Because I think that's going to have to be a critical piece. Or is there an opportunity to kind of move into value-based care or capitation models so you can capture more of the wallet share relative to just continuing in a fee-for-service model. And so I would probably lean on it's, it's more of a fundamental challenge with the model than it is ultimately tied to just valuation itself. I'm still a bit more mixed in that I don't think that reimbursement lift is going to go to zero. The pressure on that and the ability to kind of use market power to extract uh, really large increases in reimbursement, I think is going to become increasingly difficult and maybe correctly so, but there will still be some. Payers still have benefits of dealing with uh, larger providers and there's a certain amount of market power in negotiation that is not abusive and is unlikely to run afoul of kind of antitrust pressure. So I'm a little bit more mixed in the optimism around whether or not some of those businesses can still be valuable and accretive, even if the reimbursement lift is less. And that may start to hold together uh, when you're not paying 15, 16 times on something. Because in fact, I'm of the view as well that some of those very high multiples are also what was pressing the need for utilizing that market power. So a little bit of adjustment and valuations may take pressure off of how much of a rate lift you need. And there may there may still be room for that portion of the market to settle down into a productive pathway, but time will tell. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Maybe flipping over to some of the areas where you're more bullish, you mentioned uh, the ability to lean into value-based contracting. Which sectors do you think have the most potential for that Obviously, you can pull together primary care and lean into Medicare Advantage contracting when we've seen a lot of that. But what other areas have the most potential for both governmental and commercial payer value-based contracting? Yeah, it's a great question. I think historically where we're seeing the most focus is, is really models that involve the Medicare Advantage you know, senior populations, just given those populations really have the most spend, for lack of better words, right? They're kind of managing the most annual expenditures in the system. And so if you're going to shift to a capitation model, you want to start with the populations where, where the the spend or the annual kind of capitation pool is the highest, right? And so that's really where you're going to start your focus is these more senior-based 
populations. And that's where you're seeing, you know, the likes of the Oak Streets of the world and the Ioras and some of these models, right, that have gotten scooped up at pretty impressive valuations. That's really tied to the opportunity to really move from more of a traditional fee-for-service model to, you know, effectively becoming part of the underwriter, if you will, right? So instead of the provider just getting paid a per-click fee for providing the care, you know, they're now getting a piece of the premium dollar, right? And so, I mean, the analogy that I would make is it's kind of like the evolution from Blockbuster where you paid per movie rental, right, to now Netflix where you're paying a subscription fee, you know, it's a monthly recurring revenue stream to Netflix, right? And I think that's the natural evolution that healthcare has got to move in, right? It's got to move from a per-click, variable, uncertain, you know, revenue stream to one where providers are getting paid a consistent fixed monthly fee. They're on the hook for managing the population and all the spend associated with it, but they also get to keep whatever's remaining at the end of the day. And so the onus is on them, obviously, to really drive a a really efficient management of the population, spend money on care coordination, medication adherence, keeping these patients out of the hospital, right? And and really, you know, driving lower costs. And so ultimately, I think this is a piece of the PPM and the private equity model that I feel like is, is not getting told in the national specter, right? Is just the fact that these models are ultimately saving millions and millions of dollars, right? Because that's the only way that they're actually getting profitability, right? Is through actually saving costs and cutting dollars out of the Medicare system. That to me is ultimately where I see the most opportunity, right? In the PPM space is, you know, not models that are going to make money by increasing costs, right? But models that are ultimately saying, okay, by putting these pieces together and creating an integrated model where all of this is now aligned and fully integrated, we can actually cut out a lot of waste and inefficiency, right? And I think that to me is really the opportunity where private equity has a really unique angle in a way that private practices just aren't going to have the capacity to do and quite candidly, aren't just aren't set up that way because they're very much bifurcated in siloed specialty models, as opposed to creating a fully integrated multi-specialty playbook like you're seeing with the Summit Health of the world or the Dooley's or the Kelsey Siebold's, right? Where you're creating that fully integrated model outside of a hospital and really trying to only use hospital as last resort. I agree that the value-based contracting is where the future lies. How do you kind of reckon, however, with questions around profitability of those models? The valuations indeed can be heady. Uh, We all saw Oak Street uh, trade at a bajillion dollars. They've also not made a lot of money. How do you factor that into your assessment of that overall model? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I think the challenge in their model was they're trying to attack that market purely organically by going out and building de novo clinics and trying to recruit patients to brand new clinics relative to other models and where we've done work and you know represented groups like Tri-Valley Medical Group on their 
uh, partnership with with Webster Capital. We did Rancho Family and Light Bay. We did Perlman and so forth with FFL partners. All of those are very profitable models that have been able to be very successful around managing risk pools, keeping patients out of the hospital, but doing it in more of a traditional panel-based approach where you're leveraging relationships that these patients have had with providers for many, many years, in some cases, decades. And so in my vantage point, I think the key to success is you've got to start with a provider group that already has longstanding relationships with these populations and then enable you to transition those from fee-for-service to risk. That's where I, I think the profitability is relative to models where you're having to go out and kind of build these organically, right? I think it's a big leap to expect that someone at 70 or 75 or or whatever years old is just going to want to switch primary care providers overnight, right? And I think those are relationships that are built over decades. And so I do think it all starts with aligning with those providers that have those relationships and pulling them into the model. Kind of avoiding the uh, patient acquisition expense, which can be material. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, to me, and I think if you look at the seniors, right, ultimately, I think what it comes down to is who owns the patient relationship. And that to me is ultimately going to be the winner in this equation. And in most cases, it's not the health plan. It really is the PCP. And so I think starting with the PCPs and aligning with PCPs that have significant active panels, to me, that's really the place you start with, not starting with the plan and saying, okay, let us go have a hunting license to go try to call on all your patients. I think that's a much more challenging angle. If you move beyond Medicare Advantage and start looking at kind of value-based contracting with commercial payers. A few years ago, it felt like everything was going to go roaring in that direction. That evolution has been slower to materialize and especially slower to materialize in the sense of kind of full capitation like you would have in a Medicare Advantage context. What do you think of the evolution towards value-based contracting on the commercial payer side and where do you think that is headed? It's a good question. I mean, I think fundamentally the challenge is that on the commercial side, particularly when you're dealing with populations predominantly that are younger, healthier populations, there's just not a huge risk pool to manage, right? So the dollars, the proverbial subscription pool, if you will, is just not super significant. But what ends up happening is you got kind of spikes where the costs are not coming through more. You know, these aren't patients usually that have kind of long-term chronic diseases. It's usually more accidents or cancers or things like that that are often not as predictable. The other challenge with the commercial populations is they tend to be a little more transient, right? You know, Medicare knows that Medicare is going to be on the hook for these individuals from 65 all the way through. Whereas, you know, the commercial carriers, they live in the world of kind of a year-to-year contract model, particularly the ones that aren't where they're not fully insured, right? 
I think the opportunity is more the self-insured employers, right? That to me is where I see more the opportunity in the full risk side. And, and I think that is where I do think the opportunity is, is kind of going direct to these large national corporations that have hundreds of thousands of lives. The challenge is that a lot of those corporations are, are relatively spread out. So that becomes just more challenging as you do need a national network. But to me, that's ultimately where I think things end up moving is providers getting to a scale where they can directly contract with some of these large national employers and basically self-capitate, right? And that's where I think you're going to see much more opportunity than going through the plans. Certainly uh, opportunity in that, albeit a smaller slice of the kind of commercial and private self-insurance uh, arena that leaves a lot of healthcare dollars that may be less conducive to value-based contracting at a meaningful level. There do appear to be some areas where you can lean into maybe not capitation style contracting, but more kind of condition-based bundled payments, say orthopedic practices, you can kind of expand bundled payments beyond kind of hip uh, and knee replacements to do other things. So there are areas outside of full capitation where there, I think there's opportunities. What other areas do you think or sectors kind of lend themselves to those sorts of contracts? Yeah. I mean, I think what you're going to see in the traditional commercial side is probably more shared savings type models where they're not maybe full risk, but there's incentives around various quality performance or various uh, preventative screenings, things of that nature, focusing on certain areas, right? For example, um, you know, breast cancer screening or prostate screening, you know, th those are areas where I do think there's a lot of opportunity for greater focus and adherence to guidelines. I think some of the other things that are going to be interesting are what happens with some of the, the fertility-based models. It's no surprise, right, that we're having children later and later in life, and that's leading to more need for fertility services. How does that get kind of bundled into the insurance programs? Also thinking about some of the opportunities around women's healthcare, just generally speaking, right? And the opportunity to kind of think about sharing in some of the savings around natural birth for C-sections. So I think it's probably going to be more focusing on certain of these more narrower defined episodes and trying to drive savings and risk around them would be my gut feel as opposed to just blanket risk programs around all commercial because I think that's just harder to price without having a lot of historical data on the populations. Last question, and we'll uh, turn this to more general um, uh, 2023 has been choppy uh, on deal activity uh, in the PPM space. What's your uh, anticipated 2024? Uh, there's a lot of platforms that have been in private equity portfolios for f four, five, six, seven years. So there's a lot of sale pressure. There's still some headwinds uh, in the market. W what do you think 2024 is going to look like in the PPM space? I think it's going to be a year where, where the deal markets are back open. Obviously, you're seeing a lot of optimism in the public markets, which is a great signal. You're seeing 
signs that interest rates are, are really kind of nearing peak or hopefully at peak, which is, is going to create more optimism in, in the lender and create kind of more opportunity for financing. So I think once those floodgates start opening and you start seeing kind of the mega LBOs getting done again, it's going to kind of trickle all the way down, right? So, you know, you need the big 500 to billion dollar deals getting done, changing hands from sponsors, creating a new wave of, of capital coming in and creating optimism for growth that then focuses M&A at more of the, call it 10 to $200 million tucking opportunity, right? And it kind of, it all trickles down. And so, I think you're going to start seeing that. You may also see some scenarios where you see some of these platforms merging together and some of the existing investors maybe taking some chips off the table, but rolling into the new entity. I'm optimistic around that. I also think based on where everything's heading, there are also some interesting models that are involving hospitals and payers as kind of interesting third-party joint ventures that you know really isn't something you had seen necessarily as much historically but we're seeing a lot more of that and a lot more appetite for some of these more traditional local stakeholders getting involved in some of these private equity models and I, and I think that's a good thing ultimately because it's a win-win for the various ecosystems Andy I think we could uh, talk for quite a while on these topics but we'll end it there. Thanks for uh, spending a few minutes. Uh, this has been a ton of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to catching up again. Thank you for joining us on this installment of the Corner Series. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell@maguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.